If you would take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, in this section that deals with really expository preaching. In verse 13, Paul has told Timothy the minimalist component parts of an expository sermon. You read the text, you explain the text, you exhort with the text. Anything less than that is not expository preaching. And in verse 14, Timothy has really been toning down his preaching and backing off because of all the pressures that have been placed upon him as a young man in the ministry. And Paul has to tell him in verse 14, not to neglect the spiritual gift within you, and it is the gift to preach the Word of God. And the reason he says this is because Timothy is neglecting the gift to preach the Word of God, to keep the church from splitting wide open. And so as he comes to verse 15, it's still in this context of addressing the preaching of the Word of God. And he says in verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you're going to have to get better at what you're doing. You're going to have to get to the next level. And it's going to have to be blatantly obvious to everyone in the building that you are escalating in your effectiveness and in your skill as a preacher. Timothy, you cannot stay where you are. And the fact of the matter is, no preacher is just holding his ground or position. You are either becoming sharper and better and more penetrating, or the edge of your blade is becoming blunt, and you are backpedaling, but no one is remaining the same. And that is why Paul says this to Timothy. He says, take pains with these things. These things refer to verse 13, which is the reading of the Word of God, exhortation, and teaching. That's the these things. He says, take pains with these things. Literally, it's a a difficult verb to translate, and it really means to think through beforehand, strategizing and premeditating. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, your preaching is going to have to dominate your life and dominate your thoughts. You you must have tunnel vision for the pulpit. Uh, You must be locked in on your preaching ministry if you're going to get to the next level. If it was easy, we'd all be better. So take pains with these things. And then he adds, be absorbed in them. Do you see that? Uh, Absorbed is not in the original text. It's added by the translator. I'm using a New American Standard. And literally, it just reads, be in them. And the idea is you're going to have to live in this. You're going to have to sleep in this. This this must consume you. It must saturate your life. You just can't be a part-time preacher and expect to get better. This, This is going, you're going to have to be totally engulfed and be consumed with preaching or you're going to be regressing. And then he adds at the end of verse 15 that your progress, 
Progress in what? Progress in preaching. Progress in reading the text, teaching the doctrine, and exhorting with it. Your progress must be evident, clear as day to all, from the front pew to the back pew, from those who are the most spiritual in the church to those who who are just drifting in and drifting out. As people hear your preaching, they must come to the conclusion, either I'm listening better or he's preaching better. And it's probably some of both. That everyone who comes to hear you preach the Word of God over whatever period of time in their estimation of your skill in handling the Word of God, like we heard last night, a workman who needs not to be ashamed accurately handling the Word of truth, that people can easily surmise across the board that you're advancing and making progress in your effectiveness. So, having laid that out as kind of a front porch, I just want to give you some practical things. I have less than 40 minutes now, and I would love to just be able to do the whole conference on this. So, I'm just going to have to jam this in, and this is going to be from a practical perspective. If I was over in the other building and teaching my seminary class, I mean, we'll be focused on you're going to have to be sharper in the languages, you're going to have to be able to do this and do that, you're going to have to... I'm just going to give you some practical things to catapult you to the next level of effectiveness in your preaching of the Word of God. So, number one, copy a John MacArthur sermon word for word. (laughs) That's number one. You plug in your children's names into all of the illustrations, and we'll just assume you're married to Patricia, and (laughs) rule number two is don't forget rule number one, okay? All right, no, here we go. All right, number one, learn from great preaching. You need to sit under great preaching of the Word of God because I'm going to tell you it's more caught than it is taught. I've learned far more about how to preach by sitting under great preaching than I was ever taught in a seminary classroom. You need to sit under the best of the best of the best. You need to come to conferences like this and hear John MacArthur, hear H.B. Charles, hear Paul Washer, hear different men who the hand of God is uniquely upon them and you remain who you are, but there will be certain things that will be applicable to your preaching. There's an old saying, you eat the meat and spit out the bones. And there will be meat from each of these men that will resonate with you. You will see and understand the effectiveness of their handling the Word and presenting the Word. When I taught my young boys how to, how to play golf, I bought a video, Golf My Way, Jack Nicklaus. My boys are three and four years old, plopped them down in front of the TV and just play Golf My Way. Just watch a world-class golfer hit a golf ball. Just watch this about 30 or 40 times, and intuitively, you begin to pick up instinctively 
imitating what they're doing. It's the same way with preaching. We all have an accent in this room. Some from the south take five minutes to say two words. You know, they they just draw everything out. Uh, Abner Chow is going to speak in a, in a little bit this afternoon, and, and he's, he, he, MacArthur has 6,000 words to a sermon. Abner Chow has 10,000 words to a sermon. He, he just talks fast. All of us have an accent. None of us try to speak the way that we do. We have listened to our parents. We have listened to our next-door neighbor, and it just comes out of us a certain way with a certain accent. It's the same in preaching. You have a preaching accent that you have been influenced by other voices in your life, whether you recognize it or not, whether you admit it or not. And so you need to listen to the best preaching because it's going to have an effect on you, on, your, on the words that you use, the expressions, the tempo, the tone. If you're going to get to the next level and improve your preaching, you need to sit under the best preachers and absorb their preaching, and you need to take notes. I I learned how to preach on the front row of Bellevue Baptist Church under Adrian Rogers preaching. I had my little brother sit next to me. He, He had the Bible. He would turn to all the verses. I had a pad of paper and a pen. And I'm just taking notes, and as I'm taking notes, I am learning how to preach. I'm learning what an introduction looks like. I'm learning what an effective outline looks like. I'm learning how to explain a passage. I'm learning how to do cross-references. I'm learning how to do an illustration. And by writing it down, I am absorbing it much more than if I just listened to it, because men are visual. Men are visual learners. And in the process of taking those notes, I learned how to preach. And so I would encourage you to take notes as you sit under great preaching. And, and there have been many times I've gone to a conference much like this, and someone is going to be speaking, and he is um, a well-known author, and I'll show up, I'll have two moleskins, I'll have three pens, I'm ready to take down everything that he says, and I won't write a word because he's impossible to follow. He's just a genius, and his mind is just flashing in all these different directions. And then on the other hand, I'll follow someone else, and I take down copious notes because they're very easy to follow. You need to take notes if you want to learn how to preach. And you need to to read the greatest preachers in history. Do not be limited to the 21st century. You'll have a low ceiling over your head. You need to learn how to preach from the giants down through the centuries. And I tell my students over at Master Seminary, I I don't want you to preach like a Baptist or a Presbyterian or or an independent. I, I want your preaching to rise above the centuries. And I want you to to read the sermons of Calvin. I want you to read the sermons of Luther. I I want you to get on a horse with Whitfield and, and, and read his sermons. And there's something from each of these men that, that we need. I, I also basically learned how to preach by just reading Spurgeon. Oh, here are the divisions. He had subheadings 
This is how much he uses Scripture, cross-references. I'm learning how to preach from great preachers, and I would encourage you to do the same. And one more thing to add here, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You need more than one person who's your example. Immature young men often have just one man. And granted, there will be a dominant voice. But if there's only one person, you get their strengths, but you also get their, their weaknesses. And you also get their limitations. And so you need to have other men fill in those gaps where the dominant voice is weak so that you have a composite, a comprehensive picture of what true preaching is. And, and you need to listen to other men who are outside of your circles. If you're a Baptist, you need to listen to the best Presbyterian preachers. You need to listen to the best independent. If, if you're a, an independent, you, you really need to listen to the best Baptist preaching. Yeah, you really do. You need a little more octane in your tank, okay? So, that's the first thing that I would tell you, and and I'm down to 29 minutes now, but learn from great preaching. Second, preach as often as possible. You must preach a lot if you're going to become better in your preaching. You're not going to become better in your preaching sitting in your study. You're not going to become better in your preaching sitting in your den. If you were trying to learn how to play the violin, let me ask you this question. Do you think more practice or less practice would help you learn how to play the violin? It's, it's an obvious answer. You're going to have to practice. If you were trying to learn how to play the piano, do you think more practice or less practice would help you play with effectiveness? And the answer is more practice. If you're trying to go onto the PGA golf tour and your family's and your livelihood and your family's uh, eating depended on you playing championship golf, do you think more practice or no practice would feed your family? It's a self-apparent answer. More practice. I firmly believe that most preachers never come close to their potential because they preach so little. We used to call the pastor preacher. And we preach so little now that our people don't even call us preacher anymore. You know, we're just Brother Bob or something. You're going to have to preach a lot. You need to preach Sunday morning. You need to preach Sunday night. You need to preach Wednesday night. You need to teach Sunday school. You need to lead a men's Bible study. You need to do the Bible lesson for the elders. You need to go preach at a retirement home. You need to go preach at a camp. You need to go preach at a conference. You you just need to preach a lot. You need it more than they need it. When I was in seminary, I went down to the Christian bookstore, and I actually bought a lectern. I had a Volkswagen Bug. I kept it in the back seat of my Volkswagen Bug. It had a little pin you could pull out and disassemble this part from the stand 
And no matter where I went, I had a traveling pulpit. I'm, I'm just ready to go. And I just began setting up Bible studies while I was in seminary. And I began to let pastors know, if you got a sick Sunday school teacher, call me. If you need a banquet speaker, call me. One call does it all. Just, <laughs> if I don't have it, you don't need it. <laughs> Just, and, and so I tried to preach as much as I possibly could, and I pastored for almost 35 years. On an average, I preached five times a week, five different independent messages where I manuscripted the messages, some more than others. But that's the only way you can get to a certain level of effectiveness is by preaching a lot. If you want to learn how to swim, you're not going to learn in the classroom. You're going to have to get into the deep end of the pool and start treading water. And the more you preach, the more you learn your commentaries, the more you learn the original language, the more you learn what your notes need to look like, the more you learn all of what's necessary to be continually advancing in your skills. And if you only preach three or four times a year, maybe you're an associate, you you just need to understand there's going to be a lower ceiling over your head to be able to get to the next level. So therefore, you're going to have to create venues as an associate or an assistant throughout the week where you're standing on your feet or sitting in a chair, and you're opening a Bible, and you've got some kind of notes, and you're having the Word of God is pouring through you like you're a pipe, and the Word is pouring into the lives of other people. So that's number two, preach as often as possible. Number three, preach in different settings. If all you do is preach on Sunday morning in the same pulpit, week after week after week, you're eventually going to be in a rut. Uh, Your your sight lines are the same. There's a predictable pattern that you fall into. You need to preach on Sunday night. And let me tell you, Sunday night preaching is usually different than Sunday morning, and for no other reason... It's kind of a different makeup of the people who are there on Sunday night, and preaching is a two-way conversation. Though you're the only one talking, you're feeding off of whoever is there. And so it's different on Sunday night than Sunday morning, and it's different on Wednesday night. And one of the wisest things that, that I did was I taught Sunday school as well. So I would preach three times on Sunday, three different messages. In Sunday school, I have fewer notes, my lectern is up closer to the people, so therefore I have to make eye contact with them more than right here. Back there in the back rows, eye contact is not as important. You can't even see my eyes. But if you're in a smaller setting, the engaging interpersonal part, like in Sunday school, is vitally important. And so you need to preach in as many different settings as possible because each one of these is developing an aspect of your preaching. It's teaching you variance in tone of voice, the way you come across, application, implication. Every different setting is making a contribution 
to building you out as the full package of a preacher. Number four, and what I'm about to tell you is vitally important, preach to the whole person. You say, what do I mean by that? Everyone to whom you preach has a mind, they have emotions or affections, and they have a will. And you're going to have to address the total person, mind, affections, and will, or you're going to become a one-dimensional speaker. If all you do is address the mind, you're not a preacher. You're a lecturer. You're a professor. Lecturers are great in the classroom. They're stinking awful in the pulpit. They ought to be arrested for masquerading as a preacher. If all you're doing is just information, 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 information. Our goal is not information. Our goal is regeneration. Our goal is transformation. Our goal is sanctification. The, the information is just a means to a far greater end. The game's not over with information. That's just the first quarter. If all you do is address the emotions, you're not a preacher. You're a devotional speaker. You're, you're a life coach. You're a motivational speaker but you're not a preacher. If all you do is address the will, again, you're not a preacher. You're, you're a manipulator. You're a legalist, probably. The only person on planet earth who addresses all three parts of a person, the total person, is the expository preacher. We are to instruct the mind. We are to ignite the heart. We are to invite the will. All three of those are necessary in expository preaching. <clears throat> and if you want to read a great book on this, just when you think you've read every book on preaching and they're all just saying the same thing, you pick up a book like this <clears throat> and it opens up Pandora's box, The Imperative of Preaching by Carrick. Maybe it's John Carrick. It's a banner of truth book, so you know it's going to be good. And he takes the apostles, he takes Christ, he then takes Jonathan Edwards and then George Whitfield and Samuel Davies, he takes the luminary giants from church history, and he shows how they are addressing the mind, the affections, and the will. So as you are sitting at your desk and you're writing out your notes, you need to be consciously aware most of this will be addressing the mind, instructing the mind. But we want to do, as Jonathan Edwards said, raise the affections. But we also want to assault the will and challenge the will and get to the bottom line. What are you going to do with this? How shall we then live? So, number four, preach to the whole person. Instruct the mind, ignite the emotions, invite the will. 
Anything less, you're, you're several bricks short of a full load. Number five, preach one-point sermons. Now, you may have three or four homiletical headings, but every sermon must have one point, one driving argument, one driving thrust, one dominant focus that may be sectioned out. You may be preaching on the new birth, but the headings are like the necessity of the new birth and the the nature of the new birth and the, the pictures of the new birth, but it's all about the new birth. If you're trying to say five things in a sermon, you're saying nothing. You're you're like a man driving a car with his foot on the gas and the other foot's on the brake. You're just canceling yourself out. I I once had a man give me his manuscript and ask me if I would read it before he preached, and he was a layman and had not preached that much, and I said, okay. So I pulled out a red pen. I X'd out about 80% of the sermon because he was trying to tell me everything that he knows in one sermon, which I'm surprised had that much paper. (laughs) You, that was just a joke. (laughs) It's just a joke. (laughs) All right, will you forgive me for saying that? (laughs) Um... But here's the point. There's got to be a tip of the spear, a tip of the arrow that is locked in on one target. I love the account of Ben Hogan playing here at the LA Open down at Los Angeles Country Club, and he's on number four. Yeah, number four, and his caddy is with him. The caddy says, here, four iron, aim for that tree, and there's three palm trees like growing out of one stump. And Hogan says, which tree? Which tree? They're like six inches apart from each other. You've got to narrow your focus. Less is more in the sense you want depth, not breadth. As you focus in on what you're preaching, you you, you can't just start chasing rabbits and, and, and be like a man who got on his horse and rode out in every direction at once. You got to stay on the trail. You got to stay on message. So, preach one point sermons. And along that line, just still under this number five, great preaching is linear, not circular. Great preaching goes from one to two to three to four, A to B to C to D. Whether you say that out loud, nevertheless, in your mind, it is one to two to three to four, A to B to C to D, linear. If you are circular, people can't follow you. They can't track with you. You've gone off to a far country, and they're just waiting for you to circle back to where you were. Nobody can take notes on this. Nobody can track with you on, on this. 
So in your mind, you've got to be a laser beam from the first sentence to the last sentence of the entire sermon. And when I write a sermon, the last thing I write is the introduction and conclusion. Every sermon I start that I write starts with Roman numeral number one, because I don't even know how to write an introduction, and I don't know how to write a conclusion until I've written the body of the sermon. Once I've written the body of the sermon, now it's much more obvious what, an inter- what this introduction ought to be, because it's not an introduction to any other sermon. The introduction is like the front porch of a house, and the main body of the sermon is like a house with many different rooms, and the conclusion is like the back porch. You want the front porch to be smaller than the house. And you want it to have some curb appeal to draw people in to the house. And nobody wants to live in a house that has, it has no walls. Nobody wants to live in a house where the toilet is next to the refrigerator. Walls are a very good thing. Divisions are very helpful. In Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Preaching and Preachers, uh, he, he says it needs to be like a symphony where there are obvious divisions that builds to a crescendo. But the point is, it's, it's a one-point sermon. You're saying one thing three or four, from four, three or four different angles. Number six, preach with minimal notes. Now, younger men will need more notes, and the longer you preach, your notes generally, this is just a general rule, begin to shrink. Calvin preached with no notes. R.C. Sproul preached with no notes. John MacArthur preaches with notes. I, I preach with notes. I'll preach in here tomorrow. I'll have notes. Whatever, number one, whatever works for you is what you need to do. Number two, whatever that is needs to be as minimal as they can be for you to be effective. Because you don't want to stare at your notes for the entire message unless you're teaching, and there that's a whole different genre of communication. But when you're preaching, you've got to make eye contact. You've got to be reading the people while you're looking at your notes. You've got to be seeing, are, are they laughing? Are they crying? Is a wife elbowing her husband? Um, are they staring over your head? Are they looking into your eyes? Are they nodding their head? Are they shaking their head? <laughs> you're like a quarterback coming to the line of scrimmage And you called one play on Friday as you wrote your notes, but as you come to the line of scrimmage like a quarterback, I see the weak safety, I see the strong safety, I'm going to have to call an audible at the line of scrimmage. You're going to suddenly realize, all right, this lost husband finally came to church. This widow who just lost her husband is her first Sunday back. These teenagers are here, and they desperately need the gospel and you're reading them. All right, do they have, are they like deer in the headlights? Are they just have a glazed over look? Are they hanging on your every word? 
So as you're preaching and looking at your notes, you need as little here to be effective so that you're looking here and making eye contact with the people. When I, when I was doing my doctor ministry program, I was with our, under R.C. Sproul. We had to preach to one another in class. And so I'm standing up preaching, and he's sitting in the, the back row in a chair, rocking back and forth in this chair. And there's nobody in the room but R.C. Sproul in that chair. He assigned me Daniel 5, Shadrach, Mesh, uh, no, uh, many, many tickle you farson. And I'm about halfway into this sermon in front of all my peers, and he bolts out of that chair and comes stomping down the center aisle, and he grabs my notes, puts them under his arm, and walks. (laughs) True story. He walks halfway back to his chair and stops and turns around and looks at me in front of the whole class, and he goes, now preach. It's like H.B. said, a mild panic attack, you know. (laughs) But he was trying to teach me people don't want to stare at the top of your head the whole sermon. And what we call that is a, a bubble preacher. It's like you're just in a glass bubble. You're in a sound booth, and there's a moat around you, and the drawbridge is pulled up, and you're not connecting, and you're not being engaging with people as you speak to them. So, Whatever that amount of notes is that that you have, just try to make it on the low side, whatever that is, rather than the high side. Number seven, and this is hugely important. This may be my last one uh, I'll be able to, to cover. Shift your verb moods. Now, if you'd have told me that when I was in high school, I, I would have been... I don't even want to talk about verb moods. But let me just tell you these four verb moods. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first thing I did when I went up to Dr. MacArthur's office yesterday after his brilliant sermon, the first thing is I talked to him about how he shifted the moods of his verbs. The first Mood is indicative mood. It's a statement of fact. Jesus wept. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We might become the righteousness of God in him. That's an indicative statement. It's a statement of fact. Most people in our circles, the whole sermon is indicative mood. This is what their sermon sounds like. Statement of fact, 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 statement of fact. Statement of fact, 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 statement of fact. And no wonder people are worn out. No wonder they're crying for a 20-minute sermon. You sound like a phone book. You've got to learn how to... That wasn't in my notes, see? There's certain spontaneity... You've got to, it's, it's like you're driving a sports car with different gears. First gear is great for on the entry ramp. You're going to get run over on 405 if you stay in first gear. You've got to learn how to speed shift into second gear. And second gear is the interrogative mood. That's the sentence with a question mark after it. 
You've got to learn the power of asking questions. Because when you shift into the interrogative mood, you're not telling them what to believe. You're forcing them to answer the question. That's how Jesus taught. You want to preach like Jesus? Who do men say that I am? Question mark. Who do you say that I am? Question mark. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Question mark. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Question mark. You know what that does? It forces the listener to audit their own soul. It forces them to think because you're not giving them the answers. Whose image is on that coin? Have you not read? Have you not heard? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Question mark. It's powerful, penetrating preaching that gets down into the heart and soul. Where are you today with the Lord? Have you committed your life to Christ? How would you know? if you've committed your life to Christ? What evidence is there in your life? What holds you back from following Christ? Question mark. Is it the sin you would have to give up? Question mark. Is it the peer pressure? Question mark. Is it your procrastination? Question mark. What holds you back from Christ? Question mark. If you were to die today, what would you say to God? Question mark. Just take the book of 1 Corinthians and get a little ballpoint pen and draw a circle around every question mark. Just take Romans 8 and get a little ballpoint pen and draw a circle around every question mark. You may need a refill. Learn how to preach like Jesus. Learn how to articulate and penetrate like Paul. But that's only second gear. You've got to speed shift into third gear. You're going to get run over on the highway. That's the imperative mood. That is the command. Enter by the narrow gate. That's not an indicative statement, and that's not an interrogative question. That is an imperative command. Either you obey or you disobey. Repent and believe the gospel. That's in the imperative mood. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. 
you use the imperative mood very sparingly. Just like you don't address your children all in the imperative mood. But when you do speak in the imperative mood, there is an authority. We are to command. And that's what Dr. MacArthur did here so brilliantly yesterday. Indicative, 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 and a couple times some interrogatives, but it built up, and when he came to the end of the message, it, it was, it, these were imperatives. He was charging us. He wasn't giving a theological term paper. He was trying to do something to us. That's what preaching does. But that's still only third gear. There's fourth gear. It's the exclamatory mood. It's a sentence with an exclamation point after it. And the whole sermon can't be in every sentence with an exclamation point after it, unless you're a Baptist. Pick a tech and pick a text and pick a fit, you know. You use it very sparingly. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! It's intended to raise the affections where this isn't just a wax museum in here. It's intended to stir your soul. Whitfield would preach. He, he, he said this over and over in his sermons. Oh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's intended to excite your heart so we're not just the frozen chosen. God made you with emotions. Don't neuter what God has made. And so great preaching moves from the indicative to the interrogative to the imperative, to the exclamatory, and then back to the indicative, and then forward to the imperative, and you're constantly shifting gears as you're preaching, and the more you preach, the more you just do it subconsciously. You're not even thinking about it. But even as I write out my notes, I'm consciously aware. I can't just preach an all-indicative sermon. That's just a lecture. So, shift your verb moods. I'm going to give you one more, and and I've got to step down. All right, here it is, number eight. Improve your vocabulary. You cannot keep repeating yourself. After you use a word three, maybe four times, it's a point of diminishing return. When I studied under R.C. Sproul, and I intentionally went to study under R.C. Sproul, at the end of the first day, it's 8 o'clock until 5 o'clock, all day, all week, at the end of the first day, he assigned us 200 English vocabulary words. I thought, I thought I was in seminary. What is this? There was a method to his madness. He said, tomorrow you'll be examined on all 200 words, and you must be able to give a definition and use it in a sentence. 
And I realized, no, he's serious. <laughs> what do you say to RC? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. And here's what he was teaching. You've got to have a vocabulary power inside of you. And as you're preaching, you've got to layer out synonyms so that you don't keep saying the same word over and over and over. So after you say, for example, propitiation, you've got to be able to come in with satisfaction, uh, placation, uh, appeasement. Uh, You've got to have synonyms And you've got to have some words that someone who went to college understands. You've got to have some words that a blue-collar worker understands. You've got to have some words that a teenager gets. You've got to have some words from another generation. And you say the same thing by layering out your synonyms. The number one book that I use to prepare a sermon other than a Bible. I mean, it's obviously going to be a commentary, and it's going to be a language tool, but once you get past that is a thesaurus, the power of the right word at the right point, at the right time. It's penetrating. It it becomes memorable. I remember one day in class, R.C. said, Men, if you say the word blessed one more time in this class, I'm going to scream. You may n- I forbid you to say the word blessed again for the rest of the week. Say you've been favored. Say you've been graced. Say you've been something other than this tired word. All right, I'm going to give you one more, Okay. I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. Yes. You know, I really should be charging you for this, okay? Okay, number nine. This is the last one, I promise. I really mean it this time. Learn to use figures of speech. There are about 35 figures of speech that are used in the Bible, number one, you need to at least know what they are. You can't use what you don't know. If John MacArthur was here and we were talking, he would say one of the most effective tools in a preacher's tool bag is the ability to use metaphors and analogies. Your text last last night, be like a workman a field laborer, a toiler in the field. That that one word paints a, a, a whole essay. A, a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you want to learn how to talk like this, and let me just give you my own testimony. I, when I graduated from seminary, I was Mr. Epistle. I started off with Colossians. I then took a wild step of faith and did Philippians. And then up my game and went to Ephesians, which is six chapters. It wasn't until I preached verse by verse through all 150 Psalms that I stopped talking like an email and start talking like a poet. 
and paint pictures on the canvas of people's minds. As the deer pants for the water brook, so does my heart pant after you, O God. You know what an American preacher would do? Well, you know, the other day, Frank and I went hunting, and we got up in a tree, and we got there early, and we were waiting for a deer to come by. And I said, look there, Frank, there, there's a deer, I think, and give us this five-minute stupid illustration <laughs> that's supposed to help my sanctification. How did David do it? He, he did it in a few words. So he can have space for more truth. It would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. His leaf will never, never wither. He'll bear its leaves in all of its seasons, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Oh, but the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that is driven by the wind. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. You learn to use pictures. Kiss the sun lest he be angry. You need to camp out in the Psalms and Hebrew literature and be not only a lawyer from the epistles, but be a poet from Hebrew poetry. And you will learn how to say what you need to say in vivid colors. No longer preaching just black and white, but all seven colors. So, men, the only other thing I'll tell you. (laughs) I know when you're laughing with me, and I know when you're laughing at me. The only other thing is the Doctor of Ministry program. If you would like, if, 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 if any of this resonates, this is just sprinkling on top. I'd love to have you in the classroom for the doctor ministry program and to bring in these other world-class um, preachers and professors to teach you.